welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello, my name is Matthew Schill. I'm a cardiothoracic surgery research fellow at Washington University in St. Louis. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Ralph Damiano regarding his approach to surgical ablation of atrial fibrillation in the context of mitral valve disease. Dr. Damiano serves as Chief of Cardiothoracic Surgery at Washington University. Let's go through a case. A 54-year-old woman presents to you in clinic after referral from her cardiologist with a diagnosis of mitral regurgitation and atrial fibrillation. Two weeks ago, she presented to the emergency department with heart palpitations. She was found to be an AFib at that time. She converted into normal sinus rhythm spontaneously after 24 hours. A transthoracic echocardiogram showed a left ventricular ejection fraction of 52%, moderate to severe mitral regurgitation, and a left atrial diameter of 4 centimeters. She presents for consideration of surgical repair. Based on this clinical scenario, how would you proceed with your workup? Are there any specific details within the history that you're looking for? And what laboratory or imaging tests would you want at this time? Yeah, those are excellent questions, Matt. And this is probably the most common patient that will present with atrial fibrillation, and that is a patient who has concomitant mitral valve disease. And when we look at the workup, we have both the workup of the valve pathology and also her atrial fibrillation. So let's just start with the atrial fibrillation. You would like to know the exact duration of the atrial fibrillation, whether she's in paroxysmal or persistent, and you gave us the left atrial diameter. Another important factor in people who have atrial fibrillation is whether or not they have a thrombus in the left atrial appendage, and that is best evaluated by a transesophageal echocardiogram. When we have a patient who comes for a maze procedure, our workup includes a transthoracic echocardiogram, a cardiac catheterization to define the coronary anatomy, and since most of our patients are operated on using a minimally invasive right mini thoracotomy, which is our surgical approach of choice, all the patients would get a CT angiogram to make sure that it is safe to cannulate the femoral artery and vein for cardiopulmonary bypass. The CT angiogram specifically is looking for atherosclerotic disease or any evidence of dissection or tortuosity of the descending thoracic, abdominal, aorta, and the iliac and femoral vessels. In terms of her mitral disease, I think we would almost certainly want a preoperative transesophageal echocardiogram, which can better define the exact pathology. And this is an interesting patient. And let's assume she's a typical patient. We will have a cardiac catheterization which shows no coronary disease, and most likely she has degenerative mitral disease. Occasionally you'll see patients with ischemic disease in atrial fibrillation. It's a little less common. But the treatment in terms of the arrhythmia procedure is really very similar, at least in our hands. So our workup in this patient would include a cardiac catheterization, CT angiogram of her chest, abdomen, and pelvic vessels, and a transesophageal echocardiogram. Are there any ways in which the pathophysiology of the atrial fibrillation in this situation differs from somebody who might have just had lone atrial fibrillation? 
Well, that's an excellent question, one that we're looking at in the laboratory right now. And the, the reality is we know quite a bit of mechanisms of atrial fibrillation in patients who have no concomitant cardiac pathology, and we term that lone atrial fibrillation. And in those patients, we know that early paroxysmal AFib seems to trigger from foci either in the pulmonary veins or posterior left atrium, where as you have more long-standing atrial fibrillation, the mechanisms become complex. Even in lone atrial fibrillation, defining the precise mechanism in the individual patient in most instances has not been shown to be possible. And therefore, both in the cath lab and in the operating room, We tend to do anatomic procedures rather than mechanistically based procedures, and that's something that for the last 20 years we've tried to change, but we still have a ways to go. We know even less about the etiology of atrial fibrillation in patients with mitral valve disease. It's been postulated that it's due to the uh, mitral regurgitation and enlarged left atrium, but how that has impact on the mechanisms, that is still unknown. In the laboratory now, we're both looking at this both in clinical patients by performing ECG imaging or body surface mapping in patients with and without atrial fibrillation. And also in the laboratory, we've created an animal model of mitral regurgitation. Maybe five years from now, we can come back and discuss that. But Generally, in terms of our operative strategy, it doesn't make much of a difference. What we do know is that the best late results are with a maze procedure, and they're equally as good in paroxysmal and persistent atrial fibrillation. In mitral patients who are coming and are going to be on cardiopulmonary bypass with the left atrium opened, the minimum operation we ever do is an entire left atrial maze with removal of the left atrial appendage, and I would not recommend anything less for any patient. In our series, if we did not perform a complete left atrial maze, and in those patients, we isolated the pulmonary veins but did not completely isolate the posterior left atrium, and if you even leave out one ablation line of the maze procedure, which was the what we call the superior connecting line, it increased the risk of failure fivefold. So the least you need to do in these patients is a complete left atrial maze, which involves isolation of all four pulmonary veins, isolation of the entire posterior left atrium, a line of block from that isolation, the big box isolation of the back left atrium to the mitral valve, and that's called the left atrial isthmus line and removal of the appendage. We usually take a ablation line from the base of the appendage down to, toward the pulmonary veins uh, to prevent any reentry around the isolated left atrial appendage stump. And that's the least. And most patients, to be honest with you, since you really have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to cure their atrial fibrillation, we do a biatrial maze. And you can, you can ask, why do we do a biatrial maze? Well, while we have very little mechanistic information about atrial fibrillation in mitral patients, what we do have would absolutely suggest that a biatrial procedure should be your procedure of choice. One study by Dr. Nita, who was one of our ex-research fellows, who's now professor of surgery at Nippon Medical School in Tokyo, did mapping studies on a number of patients brought to the operating room with long-standing atrial fibrillation and mitral regurgitation and found that uh, between 20 and 30 percent of the atrial fibrillation appeared to originate from the right atrium. This has been confirmed in another study by Al Waldo's group that there is a percentage of patients where it comes from the right atrium. In our hands, the majority of patients get a biatrial maze. If it's atrial fibrillation of short duration and is paroxysmal, 
and you don't have tricuspid regurgitation or any evidence of right atrial enlargement or pulmonary hypertension, then in those patients, it's reasonable, I should say, to perform just a left atrial maze. But that being said, the great majority of patients would have a biatrial procedure, and that gives you your best chance. You really have a perfect environment for ablation when you do mitral surgery. You have an empty heart. You can see all your ablation lines. And when you use effective technology, the late results are excellent. We've now looked at 576 consecutive patients, and our five-year freedom from atrial fibrillation is 80% in mitral patients, so it stays good and the operation appears to be durable. And it's always been my feeling that you should give a patient the best shot. So based on this scenario in our discussion, it sounds like you'd proceed with a mitral valve repair in Cox Maze 4 procedure via a minimally invasive approach if possible. When would you recommend a median sternotomy over a minimally invasive approach? And then let's talk about some technical points. Yeah, so our procedure of choice for both mitral surgery and for maze procedures is a right mini thoracotomy. So that any patient that is a candidate for that, that's how we would proceed. Who isn't a candidate for that, which is an excellent question? Well, someone with severe peripheral vascular disease or atherosclerotic disease of the abdominal aorta or descending thoracic aorta, that would not be a good approach because of the need for femoral cannulation and retrograde perfusion. By using strict criteria and screening with CT angiography, we have had an extremely low incidence of stroke in our minimally invasive population. But I would say that you have to be careful and you need to get CT angiograms on patients. So the first patient that wouldn't be a candidate for minimally invasive would be those with atherosclerotic disease of the aorta, iliac, or femoral vessels. The next patient would be someone who's had a previous right thoracotomy. Not a great idea. A relative contraindication is a pectus excavatum, which can make the right mini thoracotomy approach difficult but not impossible. But if the patient otherwise would be a relatively low risk case, that sometimes would make us think of going through a sternotomy. Some patients have strong cosmetic reasons, and you can do it with a pectus, but it makes it a more difficult procedure. We would not do people who are really morbidly obese through a right mini thoracotomy only because of the problems sometimes with the femoral cannulation in those patients. But that said and done, most of the patients who are obese tend to get right mini thoracotomies. One advantage you have is wound healing of the thoracotomy is usually better in those patients than a sternotomy. But generally, most patients qualify for a mini thoracotomy. Do you have any tips for positioning, how you place your incision, and how you set up your exposure? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. You know, patients are positioned with the right chest elevated 30 to 45 degrees and the hips flat. We make a small subingual incision on the side that appears to have the best and largest femoral vessel and vein, and also the straightest shot up to the heart. We cannulate the femoral vessels through about a one centimeter groin incision. You know, in men, we usually either use for arterial cannulation a 19 or a 17 French, and you can get excellent flow with modern cannulas. And I would first caution surgeons from trying to put in too big of a femoral arterial cannula. And as long as you have a small cannula like a 19 or 17, we've really had no major vascular injuries in the last 10 years. We always use a single 25 French venous cannula threaded through the femoral vein, and we position it into the superior vena cava. And you can really flow even in large people with large body surface areas with that. In terms of the chest incision, 
In women, we do a, a small right submammary incision. In men, we put an incision over the fourth intercostal space. Both incisions are based on the anterior axillary line and measure two and a half inches or three of my fingers, five to six centimeters. In some women where the submammary incision requires quite a bit of tunneling to get up to the fourth intercostal space, you may have to enlarge that incision by about an inch. We enter the chest through the fourth intercostal space. And there, an important point would be we do divide a very small section of the posterior fifth rib, and then we only use a soft tissue retractor. We don't do any rib spreading. And as long as you avoid rib spreading, you get very, very acceptable postoperative pain, and we let all patients go back to full activity in two weeks. Often the patients hurt for the first couple days, but by discharge, very few patients are taking pain medicine. But the key is no rib spreading. For visualization, we put a 5-millimeter port in the inner space below the incision and just put the port just below the lower aspect of the incision. And through that 5-millimeter port, we put a 5-millimeter 30-degree high-definition endoscope, and that gives you superb visualization. For the operation, you want to use single-shafted instruments, and these are basically just minimally invasive instruments which can facilitate working through small incisions. Once we have the chest open and deflate the right lung, we usually use a bronchial blocker so we can isolate the right lung. We go on bypass and then open the pericardium. We do put a Blake drain in the right chest in the beginning of the case. We put it in the posterior pleural cavity and we infuse carbon dioxide into that drain during the entire case and that prevents air embolism. That's a critical, critical step. When we're doing a mitral maze procedure, and I would refer the residents to a couple of really, there's some really good techniques articles we published and videos available, but let's just talk about the timing of that and how we do it. So when we we open up, we would first do the right atrial maze procedure and right pulmonary vein isolation. Usually the first thing we do is a right pulmonary vein isolation. You know, that can be done bluntly. We surround the right pulmonary veins with umbilical tape. If we have to, we usually cardiovert the patient into sinus rhythm. Find and document pacing thresholds from the right superior and inferior pulmonary vein, and then perform a right pulmonary vein isolation, and then check for exit block, just by pacing. It's very, very easy to do. It really only adds 10 to 20 seconds to the case, and it's an important verification that your clamps are working and that everything is all your equipment is adequate. When you look at the lesion set, you actually, the right pulmonary vein isolation is a bit redundant, and if that dissection is at all difficult, you can omit that. But it's a nice way to start the case, and you make sure that your bipolar clamp is working. We then perform the right atrial maze on the beating empty heart on bypass. We usually just let the patient drift to 34 degrees centigrade. And while not going into any technical aspects, we do it through three purse string sutures to avoid opening the right atrium. And then we use a linear three centimeter cryoprobe. We like a reusable cryoprobe, but you certainly can use a disposable cryoprobe to take two endocardial ablations to the tricuspid annulus. When we use the cryoprobes, either disposable or reusable, we ablate everyone at three minutes at minus 60 degrees centigrade. And I think it's important. We've evaluated these probes in the research laboratory. And while they're very effective at two minutes, None of the probes were shown to be 100% effective at two minutes, and that's why we recommend an extra minute. You will not have another chance at curing this patient's atrial fibrillation. Once we complete the right atrial maze procedure, 
We put a cardioplegia cannula in the proximal ascending aorta and also use that cannula for aortic root venting. We position a transthoracic cross clamp through a uh, stab wound in the lateral chest wall and put an atrial lift system in a stab wound in the anterior chest wall. We then cross clamp the aorta and then expose the posterior left atrium and mitral valve through a standard left atriotomy. We would always perform the maze procedure first, and the first part of the maze procedure we usually do is oversewing the left atrial appendage from the endocardial side. This can be done with just a running 4-0 proline suture, and we do it in two layers. We use a pledged suture to start, then run up and back so it occludes the appendage, and then perform the left atrial maze procedure, and then when we're finished that, go to the mitral valve repair. Sure. So after you've completed the mitral valve repair, you close the left atrium and wean them from cardiopulmonary bypass and then close their thoracotomy. Uh, afterward, the patient's taken to the ICU. What tips do you have for our listeners on postoperative management of these patients after a maze procedure? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, and, and they are different than many other patients we're used to in cardiac surgery. And the first unique aspect of maze patients is they often have a pretty significant bradycardia and junctional rhythm after the procedure. We've shown in the research laboratory that performing a maze for, particularly with the bipolar clamps, results in a denervation of the sinus node, and we think that's a part of it. You know, so they often will have a junctional rhythm. As long as they're in a junctional rhythm, we do not start any antiarrhythmic drugs or beta blockers. The usual course is that resolves within the first two to four days, and you just need to wait for that to get better. Some patients after a maze procedure will have a very small P wave and actually be in sinus rhythm, and it will be called a junctional rhythm. And the important thing in those patients is if you have a question, we will check an atrial EKG, which will easily define whether it's junctional or sinus. Most patients who have a heart rate above 60, it's usually sinus, and it's an easy thing to check. So initially, we don't usually treat with antiarrhythmics, but once they restore sinus rhythm, we usually start an antiarrhythmic drug, either what they were on preoperatively or if they hadn't been on any drug. We usually use amiodarone because it's the most effective and well-tolerated for short periods of time. After a maze procedure, they often will have some fluid retention, we usually start the patients on spironolactone, which is very effective following a maze procedure. And Dr. Ad, Nivad did some research in patients which have shown that, but you also usually need furosemide in these patients. We also will anticoagulate the patients. If they're in sinus rhythm, there's no rush to do that, but we usually send patients home on either Coumadin or one of the novel oral anticoagulants, and that we usually keep for the first three months. In terms of how we manage them, after the surgery, we usually keep them on amiodarone for the first two months to cover the period of early atrial fibrillation. And in our series and in most series, the maze procedure actually has a very high incidence of early postoperative atrial fibrillation, and about 40% of our patients have atrial fibrillation in the first month. This is, we feel, inflammatory mediated and usually goes away. We usually try to hold off cardioversion if we can for two to four weeks to allow that inflammation to subside. But I always warn the patients that many patients will have early postoperative AFib and that that is not something to worry about 
and usually goes away. We would start oral anticoagulation and amiodarone. At two months, we would get an echocardiogram and an EKG if they're in sinus rhythm and they have good atrial emptying. We usually stop the amiodarone. And then at three months, we perform prolonged monitoring, either a 24 or 48-hour halter. And if there's no atrial fibrillation, we usually stop the anticoagulation at that point. All right. Well, Dr. Damiano, that was an excellent overview of the management of these patients. Certainly, it's great for our listeners to be able to hear from an expert on the topic. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, Matt. I mean, I think the last thing I would really like to emphasize to all surgeons is that particularly when you're doing mitral surgery and the patient has atrial fibrillation, you really have a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to treat their atrial fibrillation. And I would urge you, if anything, to err on doing a more aggressive procedure. And and we would usually come down on the side of doing a complete Cox maze 4. The right atrial lesion set can be done on the beating heart and doesn't add to your clamp time. And the left atrial procedure, usually we are able to finish in about 15 to 20 minutes. And I think this is well worth the time, particularly if you can get this patient back into sinus rhythm. If we have a patient like we talked about today who's getting a mitral valve repair, it really is a tragedy to leave them in atrial fibrillation and require long-term anticoagulation, particularly when you have a younger patient like we talked about. And I would really emphasize take the maze procedure seriously. Doing a full maze 4 procedure In these patients at one year, our drug-free success has been just over 85%. Like I said, that freedom from AFib really is very durable out to five years. All right. Well, Dr. Damiano, thank you very much for discussing this on behalf of our listeners. Thank you, Matt.